WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with saxophonist Brandon Douthit. He's one of the featured performers at this year's Art and Soul, a festival of black art and music that's been going strong in Indianapolis for over 25 years. And on the second half of this week's show, I'll have a tribute to the Indianapolis big band singer Virginia Maxey. This year marks the 100th anniversary of her birth. Virginia Maxey sang on recordings with Frank Sinatra, Charlie Barnett, and the Modern Airs. But first, let's join my conversation with Brandon Douthit. Brandon, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, of course, Kyle. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about your work in music. And first, I just wanted to learn about your roots here in Indianapolis. You grew up here, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm a Naptown boy through and through. Um, let's see, born in 93 and um, went to Craig Middle School, went to Lawrence North and um, matriculated to Butler after that. So, you know, I've been in Indianapolis, you know, my whole life. So it means a lot to really be from Indy and continue to play music and kind of follow through the or follow behind the footsteps of, you know, West Montgomery, Freddie Hubbard, all of the jazz legends that, you know, have really pioneered the music. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, how much the legacy of jazz in Indianapolis inspires you, influences you. Is it something you actively seek out? I know in your bio it said you played with Mel Ryan, mm-hmm. famous for uh, playing with Wes Montgomery. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Yeah, and, and that was a transformative experience for me as well. I think I was like 16 or 17 when that had happened. So, yeah, it definitely means a lot to me. You know, Dr. Pivik, my, uh, one of my main mentors, he always harped on that, you know, the tradition and actually going out and appreciating these artists while they're here and um, continuing that legacy and supporting that tradition um, by still playing the standards and being deeply rooted in the tradition. So that's something that really hits home for me and it's something that I preach to my students and, you know, anyone that's interested in jazz or just the music that you know, we call jazz. Right. There's so much history here. Indianapolis is like a school of jazz in itself, if you're willing to dig into the history and the, uh, all the great players that came out of the city. Oh, yeah. What part of the city did you grow up in? The northeast side, but I'd say... I think from like 12 or 13, I, I would just call myself an Eastsider. Yeah. I'm always curious what gets young people into jazz music because it's not always easily available. It's not part of our popular culture right. to a great degree anymore. Uh, were, did you have family members in jazz music? What got you into the art of jazz? Um, my parents were always playing like smooth jazz. They didn't play too much straight ahead stuff until maybe I was 12. No, earlier than that, I was 10. And I heard a Charlie Parker record, and there was a John Coltrane record that I had heard, and you know I was hooked after that. I had always liked the sound of the saxophone, um, and I liked jazz, but it wasn't until I heard Straight Ahead Jazz, I'm like, yo, what is this? I need more of this. You know, it just, it's electrifying. I can't really describe the feeling that it gives me just to hear and perform jazz, but 
that's you know really what I'm chasing. Yeah, the first time I heard Charlie Parker, I think I was just confused because it's just this like <laughs> blizzard of notes coming at you. What about that music spoke to you so deeply? The bebop, I don't know. It's just something that it, they're they're speaking, you know. And you can say that about any type of music, but it really just the the way that they phrase the music and um, the inflections that they give with the music, it, it it just hit home for me. I don't know. There's just a lot of energy behind that as well. So bebop and hard bop are really something that you know I come out of as well as far as the tradition. So how did you go from this interest in the saxophone, this interest in jazz, to actually becoming a student of jazz music? Um, you know, I guess I would I would say my parents kind of pushed me because whenever I was, you know, really you know, considering being a musician full time, leaving from senior year going into uh, my freshman year at Butler, my mom was like, hey, I don't think you're serious or as serious as you think you are. And I was so offended. I really was, you know, but I understand that. You know, in the moment, she wasn't trying to hurt my feelings or anything like that. She's just trying to, you know, give me a reality check. Like, hey, you need to really practice because I can be honest with myself. I was practicing, but not as much as what I should have been doing as um, someone that wants to become a professional musician. Um, so I've always just tried to, you know, stay stay the course and really just continue to work hard um, in the pursuit of my goals and for the music, you know. Mm. Education has been a big part of your life. I think you have a master's in jazz education. Is yes, that right? Sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your evolution through the education system. Yeah. So after Butler, you know, I went to Queens College, Aaron Copeland School of Music. Shout out to Sean and Bowden because he's one of the reasons that um, I decided to go to Queens College as well. He's um, a graduate from there, I believe. I don't remember what year, but he, you know, graduated prior and he helped me out and let me know his experience and how it transformed him as a player and as a person. So I think, you know, after speaking with him, that's really what gave me the the push to, okay, you know, this I think this is a school for me. He studied with Antonio Hart and I also studied with him and Tim Armacost in New York. Um and that that was, you know, just a great time and I got to um really see two different sides of the teaching spectrum with Antonio and Mr. Armacos. And um, that definitely helped my playing tenfold. And then after that, um, I was at Juilliard for a little bit and uh, was primarily focusing on music production, but was still playing, um, doing jazz, making sure that I was recording. But I wanted to um, make sure that I was still staying up on my recording skills because that was something that I was doing while I was at Butler. Still doing that at Queens College, but there wasn't an actual program for that. But, you know, just wanted to stay up, up, excuse me, stay up on my skills and continue to uh, hone them. What was that experience at Juilliard like? Because that's such a famous name. It's like saying you went to Harvard or yeah. Yale. Is it you know, all that it's, uh, did it live up to its uh, hype? For sure. You know, it's cool because, you know, Winton's office was like right Damn. down from, you know, where I would be at. And I didn't get to see him all the time, but when it's just crazy, just having him down the hallway or having um, 
why am I forgetting his name right now? Uh, bass player. Um, why am I forgetting his uh, name? Not Ron Carter, Christian McBride. Ron, yo, Ron, Carter, Ron Carter, Ron okay, Carter. Okay. Yeah, yeah, He came into the office one day, and it's just like this polarizing figure such as Ron Carter. You turn and look, and like, wow. <laughs> wow. You know, they, they have a superb faculty. So it definitely lives up to the hype, mm. uh, especially for the students, because they always have stuff going on. Um, and, and it's ridiculous just going and checking out the different ensembles because there's music every single day or there's some type of um, arts performance, you know, down to theater, um, the wind ensemble, the orchestra. So, yeah, that that was just a, an amazing, um, uh, just an amazing experience for me and to be able to surround myself with that many high caliber players and musicians. Speaking of jazz luminaries, I wanted to ask about an award you received. You've been recognized many times in your career for your mm -hmm. work in jazz music. After you graduated from Queens College, I understand you won the Jimmy Heath Award, yes. who is a major figure in jazz music. He played with Miles Davis on early classic sessions, played with all the greats of jazz. Tell me about the Jimmy Heath Award. You got to meet Jimmy Heath, right? And yeah, interact yeah. with him. Yeah, tell, for sure. tell us about that. Yeah, Mr. Heath is one of the, or was one of the most loving caring charismatic individuals and who was always willing to help any of the younger musicians and approach the music with so much respect and humility and uh, I appreciate even being um, nominated for the award you know of his namesake um, I feel like it really comes full circle because he's the one that started the program at Queens College so to even be able just to be around him and um, be able to speak with him, have my mentor, Antonio Hart, call him up on the phone or have him come into the office one day um, because he I'm not going to say he was his caretaker, but he was always with him every day, writing music, hanging out, taking him to his different gigs and shows for his Jimmy Heath big band. So I was able to at least be around um, all of that and just soak up all the information. Uh, so it, it, it honestly did mean a lot. And this was um, a couple years before his passing. So it, it, it kind of just hit home and was coming full circle the um, the man who started the program, who passed it down to my mentor, Antonio Hart. And he wasn't necessarily passing it down to me, but I just feel like, you know, I'm still coming along and I'm going down that, um that going through that lineage. So it really did mean a lot to me just to be around uh, both of them, in fact. Continuing on that subject of education and mentorship, mm -hmm. I understand Indianapolis's own Rob Dixon, the mayor, has played a role in your life as well. Tell us about Rob, your relationship with Rob. Yeah, yeah. Rob's the man. Um, he's always been a good guy. And even since I first met him, I think around 13 or 14, it was probably at um, a clinic or at a jazz fest. And he always has kind words to say. And is always encouraging. That's one thing I can say about Rob. He's always encouraging to all the young musicians or everybody in town for the most part. I've never heard him say anything negative about anyone. He's always trying to push you to be a better player. And he's always willing to give advice. So I, I appreciate him because he's one of the main reasons why I went to New York as well. I think this was maybe my sophomore year at Butler when I really started thinking like, okay, 
I want to make myself better. Like I'm practicing hard. I'm doing the right things. But I know if I really want to get to that next level, I'm going to have to move and, you know, branch out elsewhere. And then it wasn't until my junior year when Clifford Ratliff at one of our performances, I'm never going to forget this. He had said, oh, man, Rob was already playing at such a high level. But when he came back from New York, man, he was playing the heck out that saxophone. I was like, oh, really? Hmm. Maybe New York is the move. Maybe I should go out there. So I, I talked to Rob and picked his brain a little bit. And uh, Dr. Pivot mentioned that I should as well. If that's something that I really want to do and, and see, you know, how it went for him and why he moved back, anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I really appreciate him being open about his ex- experiences and always being willing to um, help me and everybody else learn. You know, that's that's one thing I really do appreciate about Rob. to ask some questions about your time in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in general, I mean, this was once sort of the cradle of a lot of uh, innovations that were happening in jazz music. Do you still feel like New York is kind of the center of jazz in some way, or is, is are those days gone? I definitely feel like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a happening spot. But, you know, you bloom where you're planted, and any scene um, can be hot. You just have to, you know, cultivate that and, um, you know, really make sure that you're doing the right things to make the scene what you want it to be or what you and your colleagues and everybody that's on the scene um, as a collective want it to grow to be. But, yeah, New York is still, you know, the hotbed of musicians. Like, every single night um, you're, you're seeing high-level talent I- anywhere. It doesn't matter where you go, any of the jazz clubs or any of the R&B or um, groove clubs for the most part, you're, you're always going to see some top-tier talent. And... There was one gig you had during your time in New York that I wanted to ask you about. It seems like, to me, like almost like a career-defining gig in some ways. You played in a horn section for the great R&B vocalist Solange, Solange Knowles, the sister of Beyonce, <laughs> but people who are really into music, you know, respect what she does on, mm-hmm. on her own without that family connection. Incredible artist. And you, you didn't just play at some random gigs with her. You played at Afropunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you played at Radio City Music Hall. Yep. You, tell me about this experience of uh, being in Solange's band. Yeah, that was, a, that was a good time. That was a really, really fun time. And uh, I appreciate my brother, um, Chris McBride, fantastic alto saxophonist from Chicago, for um, hooking me up with her. And, um, you know, putting a bug in her management's ear uh, to go ahead and, you know, get in contact with me for that first performance. And then the rest was history as far as, you know, doing the ones after that. But it was such a good time and it taught me a lot about the music business. And it also taught me about branching out and networking a lot more to put myself in other positions. But as far as learning from her, she is on top of everything, every little last detail. She's so detail oriented not only in her music and the way that she writes, but in the way that she um, puts together her shows. And she doesn't like to spoil any of her surprises, anything like that. So she kind of gets the the bad rep of being mean, but 
I wouldn't say she's mean. She's just very particular about how she wants everything to be. And I respect that about her. And that's something that I think she and her sister, Beyonce, both have in common. They want things done a certain way to have their creative vision um, come to fruition. So that's one thing that I, I took away from those performances, you know, doing things to the T and making sure, like, if it's something that you're really wanting out of the band or out of the music, then you keep practicing or you keep going until you're able to bring that out of the musicians um, to make your vision come. Yeah. What was that like for you going from playing, you know, small jazz clubs and maybe uh, campus gigs to being on stage at Afropunk, this legendary festival? Yeah, I was I had an anxiety attack. Yeah. Not going to lie. I definitely <laughs> did, because when we walked on stage, it was just like the, the huge rush. I think that was the biggest uh, stage I've ever performed on. And then Afropunk, you know, we're right there with the crowd and, you know, we're dancing, we're moving, we're playing. But the energy was just electric. So. It was already a lot for me before we got on stage, but I mean, that that rush was just, you know, ridiculous. And it was the same for Radio City because that was that was even bigger. And then Dave Chappelle was there. So, right. You um, played as part of in 2017 as part of a residency Dave Chappelle had at Radio City Musical. And I actually wanted to ask you about this concert because I remember when it happened because it was so unusual. Mm -hmm. So you have Solange and then she brought in guest artists who include one of my favorite bands, the Sun Ra Orchestra, mm -hmm. legendary free jazz group, an Earl Sweatshirt, and uh, Chassol, a French composer, pianist. This, the bill was stacked with yep. like important musicians. Tell me about that experience, playing on that li lineup of incredible artists. It was ridiculous. And unfortunately, we didn't even get to, to listen to everybody. We only got to catch um, the comedy portion. Um, they had us downstairs in the basement, no TV. We weren't able to watch anything. However, that was just a, a crazy show. Um, I don't even know how they put that lineup together or how this even came about. Um, I'm sure Dave, of course, it was it was his residency. I'm sure he has some say in that. But the lineup was crazy. Um, I like what they do at Radio City and as far as how they uh, produce their events and how detailed they are. Um, but as far as just the, the energy on the stage, that was ridiculous as well. It was um, comparable to, to Afropunk. A very beautiful stage um, that also taught me about just going through and having a really 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 long sound check um, and I wasn't really uh, you know used to that yet so uh, you know touring with her and and um, playing gigs with her definitely got me used to having long sound checks mm -hmm. and making sure that things are like spot on You're listening to Cultural Manifesto. My guest this week is the saxophonist, Brandon Douthit, one of the featured performers at this year's Art and Soul. Let's return to our conversation. And you're now back in your hometown. You completed your education. You're back here in Indianapolis. Yes. Tell us about your life in Indianapolis today. Um, so I'm back in Indy. Definitely glad to be back. Um, I have a private studio, so I'm teaching a few students, and um, I'm getting out around town. I have my band. Um, I also go by Tom Foolery. Want to ask then, you uh, about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom <laughs> Foolery and the Laughing Stock. Uh, I've been going by Tom Foolery um, 
since high school, but not everybody knows that. Some of my closest friends know um, where that came from and why I go by Tom Fullery. Uh, but that's something that I've been pushing, really trying to just um, really get closer with my bandmates and continue to make beautiful music and um, get some good feedback from them so I can, you know, uh, make changes to the music, bring more tunes in and continue to grow with them. But looking to record, um, I also am a business owner, you know, side note. Um, I'm a thrifter, hmm. so I, I have a business called Vintage Vagabond. So if I'm not playing, I'm either running my business or teaching lessons, which, you know, is something that keeps me occupied. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So is there a difference? If someone goes to see Brand- the Brandon Douthit Quartet, is there a difference between seeing Tom Foolery and The Laughing Stock? Is it a different repertoire, different vibe? What's the difference there? Oh, there's definitely a difference. You know, with Tom Foolery, like, I, I, I'm not going to say I don't care, but it's just a completely different side of me. And I haven't been able to do too many of those shows here just yet. Um, Brandon is, is the more serious, like, straight-ahead jazz cat. Like, mm. You'll see, like, what everybody's typically used to seeing me as, you know, very... Um, stoic, stone face. Whenever I'm playing on stage and just trying to be in the moment with um, my bandmates, but Tom Foolery, I'm having more fun up on stage, visible fun, and um, yeah, it's definitely a difference between the two. And uh, Tom Foolery and the Laughing Stock comes from more of a a hip hop approach, mm-hmm. hip hop rock approach. Um, you want to call it jazz fusion with it as well. And uh, I play more standards as the branded out the quartet mm-hmm. or more straight ahead music. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, jazz has become so serious nowadays, it's, and it can be kind of dry, right? Uh, I think it turns a lot of people away. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, the roots of this music, it was very intertwined with entertainment and comedy. I mean, Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, they all embraced humor in their music. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you went out to see the Lionel Hampton big band, you know, he was like doing backflips and <laughs> all kinds of crazy uh, moves on the dance floor. Uh, what role does humor have in your music, and how do you see humor relating to jazz? Um, you know, as far as the role that it has in my music, you know, I might dance a little bit. I make jokes on stage because, you know, we're having fun and I want the the audience to feel that as well. So to kind of lighten up the mood or if it's a a more darker song or a song with darker chords, I might want to loosen up the, the crowd after that, after pulling on their their heartstrings a little bit and make them laugh. So, you know, that kind of balances it out as well. So, you know, typically at my shows for the Tom Fuller and Laughing Stock, I'll, I'll make some jokes because, you know, I kind of think I'm funny on occasion. But I, I just like I like to, to share that joy and make sure everybody is is having a good time, which, you know, as you were saying, that's that's part of the, the reason that we play this music or where it came from. Everybody was having fun, dancing, shouting at the band, just enjoying themselves. So I, I just want to kind of bring that back. And I wanted to ask about one project you've done as tomfoolery. You have a few tracks online that are covers of SpongeBob SquarePants music. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved that. I loved that when I was like, lo- uh, looking into your uh, catalog of music. I thought that was fantastic. Tell us what inspired you to do the jazz versions of the SpongeBob tunes. You know, it was supposed to be a joke, and it, it still is, um, which is you know part of the tomfoolery stuff. But a lot of people like the music, They're like oh this is great, and, mm. and like I use this a lot. Can we get a one hour version, especially for the one is like Kelpie G mm-hmm. with me playing clarinet and the other stuff where I'm playing saxophone um, has been received well. But um, it's the Kelpie G one with me playing the clarinet. I just didn't think that it would be received like I'm I'm serious. But that that was a five minute you know recording, and I just was having fun with it, started dancing and whatnot. Um, 
yeah I, I do a little bit more of that as well i just haven't been putting out those tracks um this was around i think COVID time whenever i had re- released the the first couple but there's a few more that i have recorded just haven't put them out um it's just something that i enjoy i'm a huge kid essentially so you know spongebob stuff hey arnold i did a couple of those um, I got some Dragon Ball Z mm-hmm. ones that I uh, have recorded, and yeah, that, that's just something that's part of the tomfoolery um, act that I, you know, I like to put out as well. Just some of my arrangements and whatnot. Yeah, I love it. I hope you keep putting them out. Oh yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. You know, I, it's honestly just supposed to be a joke, so I'm I'm just happy that people are having fun with it. And it's February, Black History Month, which means the Arts Council's Art and Soul series is Ooh. now underway, which has become like an institution here in Indianapolis. It's a big deal yes. every year. And uh, it's a great platform for emerging artists to uh, share their work with the wider public of Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Tell us about – you're one of the four featured artists at Art and Soul this year. Tell us about your uh, relationship with Art and Soul and what this means to you. Yeah, this this means the world to me. Coming from Indianapolis, you know, being born and raised here uh, to receive an honor like this, it, it honestly does mean a lot. Um, I've been working really hard trying to get back to where I was with my playing. I feel like I kind of um, w- was set back just from a, a dog bite to my hand and mm. a few other things like uh, chronic condition I've been dealing with. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, this is like perfect timing for me to like really showcase myself as an artist and really, you know, just go for it. Um, Art and Soul has been great as far as just helping me, um, not just as an artist, but making sure that I'm organized and being able to um, bring um, not only my band, but bring the music to life at these different shows and having different opportunities to not showcase only me, but the band as well. So I'm excited about that. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, it just really does mean a lot to me. And I'm so, so excited to play and I uh, hope everybody comes out to check us out. Yeah. And finally, Brandon, I'm just curious as a young musician, mm-hmm. uh, what do you see in the future for jazz in Indianapolis. You know, I know you play with Dorian Phelps, talented young musician. Mm-hmm. There are, there's a group of talented young jazz players here in the city. What do you see as the future of jazz in Indianapolis? I see of a I see a lot of hip hop crossover, mm-hmm. which is good. Yeah. And I see a lot of punk rock. I just see a lot of different styles being blended and it's influencing not only my music but the way that other people have been composing around town. So um, I attribute that to the young cats in town, the ones that are coming from Butler, Marion, IU, UND, you know, the surrounding schools. Um, they're coming back to play at these jam sessions and they're coming into town to play these gigs and, you know, putting out their, their music. And, you know, it, it's getting out there and it's influencing others. So I would say it's just going to be a nice meld of some of these different styles. I would say Dorian is really good at that, as well as Graham Health. Um, as far as just blending different styles and being seamless in going in and out and um, making two things that don't really seem like they would go together as far as genres of music and making them fit and work. 
Thank you so much for being here, Brandon. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kyle. Appreciate you. Thank you. My guest this week has been the Indianapolis saxophonist, Brandon Douthit. You can catch Brandon performing live at the Arts Garden on February 25th for Art and Soul's West Montgomery 100-Year Tribute. Cultural Manifesto will return after this short break. I'm Kyle Lone, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. For the remainder of this week's show, I'll pay tribute to the late Indianapolis big band singer and songwriter Virginia Maxey. This year marks the 100th anniversary of her birth. Maxey performed and recorded with artists including Frank Sinatra and Tommy Dorsey. Virginia Maxey was born in Indianapolis on September 4th of 1923. She gained notoriety as a singer during her teenage years at George Washington High School. By age 17, Maxie was working professionally at local venues like the Indiana Roof Ballroom and the Southern Mansion. Maxie left Indianapolis in her early 20s, performing with band leaders including Tony Pastor and Charlie Barnett. And she cut one of her earliest records with Charlie Barnett in 1944. She was just 21 years old at the time. And we'll hear that track now. This is Charlie Barnett was sitting home waiting for you. The phone doesn't ring. I thought that it would. The postman don't bring the message he should. My evenings are blue. Sitting home waiting for you. I've counted each tear, a million or more. I'm longing to hear that knock on the door. There's little to do, sitting home waiting for you. That was Charlie Barnett with Sitting Home Waiting for You, featuring the late Indianapolis vocalist Virginia Maxey. Up next, we'll hear three tracks Maxey recorded with the band leader Ziggy Ellman. From 1947, we'll hear Once More and the Angels Sing. And from 1950, we'll hear Blue Prelude. Oh, yes, once more I want to love you in the springtime Oh, just once more to share all joys with you Last once more, know that you are mine alone, dear. Oh, just once more, I hope and pray in vain. We meet and the angels sing. The angels sing the sweetest. Bye. 
Let me sigh, let me cry when I'm blue. Let me go away from this lonely town. Won't be long till my song will be through. We just heard three tracks from the Ziggy Elman Orchestra, featuring the late Indianapolis vocalist Virginia Maxey. This year marks the 100th anniversary of her birth. Up next, we'll hear two tracks Maxey recorded with the Tony Pastor Band, Someday I'll Dream Again and My Heart Isn't In It. That was the Tony Pastor Orchestra, with My Heart Isn't In It, featuring the late Indianapolis vocalist Virginia Maxey. In 1953, Maxey married the songwriter Matt Dennis, best known for composing the classic standards, Angel Eyes and Let's Get Away From It All. They performed together often in the ensuing years, and in 1954, Maxi was featured on the album Matt Dennis Sings and Plays Matt Dennis. We'll hear two tracks from that album now. We Belong Together and When You Love a Fella. We belong together Like romance and flings Corsets and strings Juleps and mints Lighters and flints We belong together we go strong together Like hot dogs and rolls Nose drops and coals Benches and parks Groucho and marks We belong together When you love a fella It can rain around the clock But every time you're with him There's a rainbow your days are filled with sunshine And at night your dreams come true When you love a fella who belongs to you You make it sound awful pretty, Virginia, but 
The way I hear it is like this. When you love a fellow, you don't care if he's got dough. That was Matt Dennis and Virginia Maxey with When You Love a Fella. We've been celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of Virginia Maxey. She was born in Indianapolis in September of 1923 and passed away in Riverside, California in March of 2016. We'll end this tribute to Virginia Maxey with a track she recorded in 1964 titled The More I See You. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto. The more I see you, the more I want you. Somehow this feeling just grows and grows with every Can you imagine how much I...